Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Ayala, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop, update on the treatment of colorectal cancer. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, and we are also um, have some colorectal organizations as well that are uh, collaborating with us, Colorectal Cancer Alliance and Fight Colorectal Cancer. Um, so there are other groups here that are specific to colorectal cancer and other groups that are actually um, helping us to promote this program um, heavily. And so um, because of that and because of all of your interest in the program today, we have over 465 participants on the call today. You come from all of the United States, from both um, very rural areas and uh, very urban areas as well as suburban areas, um, so all different regions of the country. And we have today on the call over 465 participants. And we also have some international participants today on the call from Canada, Ireland, the United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So it's a bit of a global call as well. And um, we're delighted with your response to our program today. And today's um, program is supported by Ethicon, part of the Johnson & Johnson family of companies, a grant from Genentech, an independent educational grant from Merck and Company, Inc. I really want to thank them for their support of the program and also for their collaboration in making this program possible. Now we have wonderful speakers on our program today, from best of the best, I think. And our first speaker is Dr. Albie Benson III. Dr. Benson is Professor of Medicine, Associate Director for Cooperative Groups, Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center, Northwestern University. And Dr. Benson is going to be addressing an overview of colorectal cancer, treatment of metastatic refractory colorectal cancer, novel treatment approaches, and predicting response to treatment. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Benson. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, and thank you all for joining. This is a particularly important topic since March is Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month, and uh, this is a, a welcome opportunity to discuss this important disease. Just as a reminder, the colon represents the last uh, six feet of the intestinal tract, and attached to the colon is the rectum, which is the last uh, five to six inches of the intestinal tract. The colon has very important function. It's not only a reservoir for fecal matter, but it also is important since it does absorb uh, water and other nutrients. Um, in addition, there is tremendous interest in the normal bacteria that occur in the intestine. And this is referred to as the microbiome. And this is an area of intense research now because what's been observed is that our microbiome has been changing over years. And there are theories that with this change, this may actually be linked to uh, rising incidence of uh, colorectal cancer, and in fact, maybe an important reason why we are seeing 
uh, a rise in younger individuals under age 45 who are developing colon cancer. Um, at the same time, we are seeing a decline in older individuals uh, with colon cancer. But having said that, it remains a major health problem. The incidence is lowest in Asian Americans and highest in African Americans. Um, uh, there are known risk factors. Uh, so there are genetic risk factors. These are factors where people are uh, born with risk. Uh, in the world of colorectal cancer, the genetic risk is an important subgroup of people, but is, is uh, far less common than uh, the bulk of people who develop uh, colorectal cancer. If you have a first-degree relative, meaning mother, father, brothers, sisters, for example, who have colorectal cancer, you are at increased risk. Uh, the, the highest risk group uh, tends to be people um, if they have had a, a primary uh, colorectal cancer younger than age 45. But there are other risk factors, such as diabetes, obesity, alcohol use, smoking, the Western diet. Uh, and in fact, there there's a, a great deal of investigation looking at factors such as diet, as well as other uh, lifestyle factors such as exercise that may be important, um, as well as, uh, uh, for example, um, the role of vitamin D in preventing colon cancer as well as uh, aspirin. Um, about 70% of all colorectal cancers are what we call sporadic. Uh, uh, that means that there's no defined family risk. Uh, about 20% are familial so that we, we see family members who have colorectal cancer and then there are others who have a a clear genetic risk, the most common uh, is uh, known as Lynch syndrome. Um, the, uh, the goal of um, caring for a person with colorectal cancer is certainly to uh, uh, evaluate to see who can undergo surgery. And uh, so certainly for stages one, two, and three colon cancer, uh, surgery is the standard of care. Uh, there are individuals, particularly with stage three colon cancer, where postoperative chemotherapy is recommended. And one of the newest developments is to evaluate whether the standard six months of what is termed adjuvant chemotherapy is necessary versus three months. And in some circumstances, three months of treatment may be sufficient. So it's important for people who have had resection of their primary uh, colon cancer to discuss what is the best duration of therapy uh, after surgery for a given uh, individual. For metastatic colorectal cancer, we, we've made uh, a great deal of progress, which has improved outcomes for people with metastatic disease, including 
the ability to identify people who may be able to actually go to surgery and remove uh, a metastatic disease area. Uh, and this usually includes the integration of chemotherapy with or without what are known as biologic therapies. Currently, we have five chemotherapy drugs and six biological drugs. And with this number of agents, literally we have hundreds of different combinations and sequences that we can consider for each individual uh, person. And it is important right up front when someone is diagnosed with metastatic disease to review these options and sequences to, to come to a determination of what is most optimal for that individual uh, person. A phenomenon that has also emerged that is of great interest, although was has been known for many, many years, is that there is a difference in outcome between those people who have a right-sided colon cancer versus a left-sided colon cancer. And what we are discovering is that there are biological differences in these tumors depending on whether they originated in the right side of the colon, for example, in the cecum, versus the left side of the colon, for example, in the sigmoid colon. And uh, a, a great deal of work is, is now undergoing to understand these biological differences. What's known as the Cancer Genome Atlas, uh, which was um, published in 2012, as, as well as what's been termed the Consensus Molecular Subtypes of colorectal cancer, which was published in 2015, has actually led to the development of four different biological subgroups of individuals. And these subgroups are important because they can have prognostic implications, as well, at least in some cases, lead to predict outcomes based on individual therapies. And so now in our research, we have to pay much more attention to right versus left um, presentation of a, of a colon uh, tumor, as well as these molecular subtypes. Uh, in terms of uh, tumor genetics, and you'll be hearing more about this, there are some tests now that we routinely perform that can have very important implications for individuals. So, for example, uh, there um, are what are referred to as RAS mutations, which um, can be evaluated from an individual person's tumor. And this is important because it can determine whether an individual is a potential candidate to receive um, a group of uh, biological therapies. Uh, those who have mutations of RAS uh, um, tend not to benefit from certain biological drugs that we can offer people, and so it's a very important distinction. 
there's a, another mutation uh, that is less commonly seen called BRAF mutation. And this is also important. Not only does it have prognostic implications, but we are developing treatment strategies for these individuals, and there are very encouraging uh, data now available with a three-drug combination, for example, that includes two biological drugs as well as a chemotherapy drug that uh, has, uh, has given hope that we can improve treatment opportunities for people with BRAF mutations. So it's very important that people have not only RAS mutation assessment, but also BRAF mutation assessment. And yet another biological phenomenon that we can study in patients' tumors is referred to as the DNA mismatch repair pathway. And so uh, people refer to this as uh, MSIH, or deficient mismatch repair tumors. Uh, there are different assays to evaluate mismatch repair versus microsatellite instability status. However, biologically, these are the same. And we, we see uh, deficient mismatch repair in approximately 15% of uh, colorectal cancer patients. And this is important because uh, these individuals may be very good candidates to receive immunotherapy. Uh, just very briefly, with mismatch repair, this refers to what are called microsatellites, um, which are short, repeating DNA sequences across the, the genome. Now, these sequences are very prone to errors. And there are genes that can correct these errors. However, um, if uh, people uh, have a uh, deficiency in, in these genes, then these errors are allowed to uh, occur and replicate. Uh, we can see this either through germline mutations, which means what a person is born with, or a non-inherited loss of expression of a mismatch re repair gene. Uh, nonetheless, we, we want all colorectal cancer patients tested for MSI because it is an important component of the discussion of treatment options, including the potential for immunotherapy. There's a lot more we would uh, cover, but we're limited by time. And so uh, I will uh, uh, finish my presentation now and turn the call back over to Dr. Mesner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Benson. That was outstanding and really a wonderful way to start the program. Um, very informative. And um, I know there'll be many questions for you during the Q&A. And um, thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Rono Yeager. Dr. Yeager is medical oncologist, gastrointestinal oncology service, assistant attending physician, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Yeager is going to present on tips to manage side effects, symptoms, and pain, the role of precision medicine in informing treatment, clinical trials, and key questions to ask your healthcare team. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Yeager. 
Thank you very much, Dr. Mesner. It's a pleasure and an honor to be able to join today and be part of this uh, uh, conference. Um, so I wanted to speak first about some tips to manage side effects and symptoms. And I think the, the key is to be in close contact with your doctor and your healthcare team. Um, there was actually a study that looked at usual care where patients call their doctor as they had symptoms or reported symptoms when they saw their doctor at regular visits versus um, patient-reported outcomes where patients got a tablet and they received email reminders to record any symptoms that they have. And when patients had severe symptoms or increased symptoms, a message was sent to their nurse. And they found that the patients who used the um, tablets who were in the group with um, Patient, of patient-reported outcomes often had interventions from the nurse to help them manage their symptoms and reported an improvement in their quality of life, were able to tolerate chemotherapy longer and received an overall longer duration of chemotherapy, were less likely to need to go to the emergency room, and actually had an improvement in survival. So what this teach, teaches us is that it's important to be in touch with your doctor there may be times when you think, I don't need a call, but actually you may get suggestions that may both help you feel better and help you tolerate the chemotherapy better and stay on treatment and even have an outcome um, in terms of um, the response you have. In terms of pain, I think that's a particularly difficult symptom um, and a big concern for patients, but we actually have many tools to help with pain. If patients have pain, there are many um, drugs that are available, and I think it's important to be in close contact with the healthcare team that they can put a plan together and can go through steps of what to do if the plan doesn't work to make sure that there's an optimal um, plan to help treat the pain. So moving on to the um, role of precision medicine in informing treatments. So before I, um, I start and define the term, I think it's helpful to have a little background as we think about standard chemotherapy. And Dr. Benson introduced um, that we have uh, many treatments that are available, but when we think about standard chemotherapy, um, I want to just explain what that is. Um, so standard chemotherapy is meant to be a treatment to go after cells that are dividing. Um, the treatment is meant to act at the level of the cells that are dividing, either um, at the level of making new copies of DNA so that the new cells each have DNA, or at the um, machinery that's part of cell division. And so any cell that's dividing is vulnerable to chemotherapy. Cancer cells, which are dividing more, quick, more quickly, are most vulnerable, and that's how we have a, a benefit from chemotherapy. But normal tissues are vulnerable as well, so we can have side effects such as hair loss or diarrhea. The idea behind precision therapy is that we go after a specific feature within the cancer cell. So if the cancer cell has a protein on its surface, the, uh, uh, pre the precision therapy is meant to go after that specific protein, or if there's something that's altered within the cancer cell, the therapy is meant to be a match for that. And it's often described as a lock and key, where the key is um, the change within the cancer cell, be it more copies of something on its surface or some, an altered protein, and the lock is the treatment, which is meant to be an exact match. And so when they are, um, match together, we get a, a, a selection for the effect on the cancer cells and hopefully a, a kind of a precise treatment. The idea is also is that the, the treatment is precise based on the, what's going on with the patient's tumor and is not a treatment that we give to everybody, but rather where, the, where there is that key, we try to find the matching lock. In colon cancer, as Dr. Benson alluded, we have some uh, biologic therapies um, which are already approved, and specifically we have a targeted drug with inhibitors of a protein called EGF receptor. 
the drugs are called cetuximab or Erbitux or Panatumab or Vectabix, and they are drugs that bind to a protein on the surface of the colon called the EGF receptor, and they basically turn off the, this protein and stop the signal that's coming from this protein that allows the cells to divide. We know that many colon cells are sensitive to the EGF receptor, and it's an important signal for the cells that tells them to divide. And so binding with this targeted drug and blocking that signal can cause the tumor to stop growing and to shrink. However, we know this is an imperfect um, target in that um, in colon cells, we have the normal receptor, the normal EGF receptor that's important, and that same receptor is also um, expressed in some other tissues. So we see side effects like we do with um, what we think of a standard chemotherapy. So patients who are, receive these drugs can have a rash because this protein is important in the skin and can have electrolyte abnormalities because this protein is important in the kidneys as well. The, not all patients respond to these drugs, and as Dr. Benson mentioned, there, we have tests that suggest that cert, uh, patients who have certain mutations within their tumors are less likely to respond to these drugs, or patients whose tumors have developed in different parts of the colon may be more or less likely to respond. The hope is that we're going to develop these uh, precise medicines further and be able to have better matches um, for patients based on whatever um, has been altered within their tumor to allow the tumor to grow. And the goal is um, to really have a precise match, and clinical trials are now trying to take the information we have about the genetic makeup of patients' tumors to match them to a drug that may be uh, focused on what is the alteration. So there are currently um, two groups where um, this is furthest along. Um, Dr. Benson touched on one of these groups, and I want to take a moment to touch on this as well. So the first is a group that is called HER2 amplified. What that means is there are more copies of the HER2 gene um, within the tumor, and the HER2, like the EGF receptor, is a receptor on the cell surface. And so these patients have in their colon tumors many more copies of this receptor that allows the cell to have a constant signal that, that it's a good time to grow. Um, clinical trials have taken advantage of the fact that HER2 um, medications that block HER2 are already FDA approved in breast cancer, and we know that combinations of these drugs in clinical trials have shown activity that many patients can respond. And this is an area of research, and there are um, a whole generation of clinical trials now going forward looking at um, treating patients who have these HER2 amplifications. About 3% of patients with colon cancer have HER2 amplifications, so it's a small group, but it's a group that may benefit from these specific treatments. The second group Dr. Benjamin mentioned as well are patients who have mutations in BRAF, specifically a mutation called V600E. What that means is at the um, 600 position, a V was substituted for an E, uh, for an, an e was substituted for the V. This occurs in about 8% of patients who have metastatic colon cancer, and we, um, it's important because we now have drugs that can bind to BRAF and can actually act at this target. So unlike the uh, HER2 or EGFR, BRAF is a protein within the cell. It is um, a protein that um, regulates cell division, and the V600E mutation creates a, basically an on puts this, the, this protein on, on all the time and doesn't allow it to turn off. So there's a constant signal to the cell that it's time to divide. The drugs that are currently developed um, can bind to BRAF and can turn it off. What we know is giving these drugs alone is not sufficient because the colon cells can still grow, but the 
early data suggests that combinations may be able to work together to really block um, signaling and block that um, signal to the cells as time to grow um, and lead to uh, tumor regression. There is a phase three trial, which is a trial that's trying to get FDA approval now, called the Beacon Study, that is looking um, randomized at uh, a uh, targeted therapy combination for patients who have BRAF-B600E mutations within their tumor compared to standard chemotherapy to see which one is more effective. When we think of clinical trials, um, there's been a lot of excitement and research in the use of immunotherapy. So this is also a um, targeted treatment, but here rather than targeting the tumor, we're targeting the immune environment. And the goal is to help patients' own immune system attack the tumor and destroy the tumor. Um, the, our, our immune system is set up not to go ahead and attack ourselves, and there are many breaks on the system so that if we see something that is self, the immune system doesn't go after it. However, cancer cells are slightly different from the rest of us because they've developed alterations along, um, their, uh, that along their progression to become a true cancer that allow them to grow and that could be seen by the immune system as different. We know that patients who have uh, microsatellite unstable colon tumors, which is a group that Dr. Benson mentioned, it's about 4% of patients with metastatic colon cancer. It's largely patients who have inherited um, familiar uh, cancer syndromes. They can respond to immunotherapy, and immunotherapy is already FDA approved for this group. More common in patients who have sporadic colon cancer, so colon cancer without a family history, we see that the immunotherapy alone, so giving a single drug to lower the threshold that our own immune system will go after the tumor, does not appear to be effective. But clinical trials now are looking at combinations of two drugs to maybe wake up the immune system and see the, col the colon tumor. So finally, some questions um, to think about when you speak with your healthcare team. I think the most important question is what's the goal of treatment? Um, is the goal to stop the cancer from growing and to prevent any symptoms, or is it to get rid of the cancer completely and to cure the patient? Having this understanding, I think, helps navigate what kind of treatment you want to uh, receive, how long you want to receive treatment, and coordinating um, uh, with your doctor the treatment plan as well as thinking forward to the future and other plans you might have to make. Um, in terms of the duration of treatment, I think it's helpful to have a discussion, and if the duration of treatment is open-ended, um, it's uh, it's helpful to talk with your team if there's a potential for breaks from treatment. And finally, whether there are any additional tests that may open new treatment options or may open clinical trial possibilities. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Yeager. That was really outstanding and, and lots of areas covered and the importance of really having those questions to ask to help your team and, and all the tips about managing side effects. So I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A and the complexity of, of course, of um, precision medicine, so thank you. Um, and our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bearden. Ms. Bearden is a dietitian, and she's with the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center. And Ms. Um, uh, Bearden is going to address nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, um, Ms. Bearden. I'm so excited to be part of today's presentation um, discussing some important facts um, related to nutrition um, in the presence of colorectal cancer. Nutrition and hydration are key to the tolerance, um, our tolerance to treatment and provide us the energy to do the things we enjoy. Um, in an ideal situation, a plant-based diet um, is what's recommended for prevention, during treatment, and in survivorship. 
That translates into having about two-thirds of your plate come from a plant-based food, such as a whole grain, fruit, vegetable, nut, seed. And the benefit from the plant-based foods um, have been found to, to really kind of hone in on the antioxidant and phytochemical benefits along with the fiber component. Um, fresh or frozen are the best forms um, of plant-based foods for us to access. Um, and incorporating a variety of colors is the next level of recommendation. Um, the other third of your plate should be from a lean protein. Examples of that would be wild-caught fish, including cold-water fish such as halibut, salmon, tuna, sardines, um, poultry, or beans um, more often. And the reason why we have protein in our diet is it's important for um, a building block for our tissue. So healing is very important, and through our treatment, Healing happens at many different stages, not just surgery, but radiation um, and, and through chemotherapy, we need um, new tissue to be um, developed. So protein is important throughout your care. If you're preparing for surgery or recovering from surgery, protein might be part of the discussion um, you're going to have with your healthcare team. So um, reaching out to your dietitian for suggestions on how to do that, how much protein you need, um, that's why she's part of your healthcare team is to help support you um, with questions such as that. Um, there may be a need for you to take a supplement or modify your diet um, based on your unique circumstances. If you're not directed by your healthcare team to do so, please talk with them before before starting any new supplement, herbal, um, vitamin, starting a new diet. Um, it may seem harmless, but there could be potential interactions with the therapy. Um, hydration is the next topic that I wanted to touch on. And dehydration um, can actually increase your feeling of nausea, fatigue, make you feel dizzy. Um, fluids are anything that are liquid at room temperature, such as water, juice, sports drinks. Um, a general guideline is for most people um, needing between 8 and 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid a day. So that's about 64 to 80 ounces of fluid a day. If you're experiencing side effects, keep a daily record um, of what you've eaten and how you feel afterwards. This can be really helpful in trying to target how to um, support you. Um, a dietitian again, can provide you with um, support during diet changes, questions you may have just in general about your needs, such as calorie, protein, fluid needs, um, and answer anything that you have related to how nutrition can be impactful with your care. I'm going to close with that, and thank you for allowing me to be part of today's workshop. I'm going to pass it back, the line back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much. That was wonderful, Diana. And um, I know we'll do questions for you during the Q&A. We are going to have a Q&A very soon, so please do um, prepare your questions. Um, I'm just going to say a few words about the services you can access from Cancer Care, and then we're going to have to take as many of your questions as possible. So um, Cancer Care is a national organization. It's staffed primarily by oncology social workers. We have about 40 of them. They're master's trained oncology social workers. And they um, really are here to um, address um, your concerns in terms of your emotional and practical and financial concerns. And we do offer financial assistance. We have a copay foundation. Um, and our staff offer both individual counseling on the phone and online, as well as um, support groups on the telephone online. And we have a number of support groups for people living with colorectal cancer, both people themselves living with colorectal cancer, as well as for their caregivers. Um, so we have lots of different groups um, that might be of interest to people. Um, 
Many people find it helpful to be a part of a group. Some people prefer to talk to someone individually, and some prefer both. Um, so all these services are available. Um, you can simply reach um, us at Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673, or you can visit our website at www.cancer.org. And again, you can uh, pose your question on our, on our web, uh, website as well, and one of our socials will get back to you for those of you who don't uh, are international or prefer to use the website to access services. And now we have time for questions, um, and I'm going to ask Ayala to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. So um, Ayala, do you want to let everyone know how to ask questions? Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to move yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Our first question is from Ron R. Your line is now open. Hi. Uh, thank you very much for the presentation. I have a question uh, about the CAR T-cell therapy. Uh, I know that it's come online for certain blood cancers, and I'm wondering what the status is for uh, solid tumors with colorectal cancer at the present time. Is it in clinical trials, or has, has it actually been uh, applied yet? That's a great question. Thank you. Um, Dr. Benson, do you want to address that question to start? There is uh, interest in, in looking at CAR T-cell uh, strategies for what we call solid tumors, but uh, clearly very much in the highly investigational phase. Um, and so there are uh, some centers uh, across the country that are uh, carefully identifying individuals to see if this would become an option for patients. But it's very much at the highly experimental phase right now. Uh, perhaps uh, Dr. Yeager has some other thoughts, too. I completely agree. Yeah. Excellent. Um, and... Um, the question in front of our online participants. Um, so um, this is a question for um, Ms. Bearden. Um, so in, the question is, um, many of my Asian patients are interested in culturally appropriate diet during the treatment. Are there any resources of Asian plant-based recipes online? Oh, um, that's a good question. I know AICR um, works to provide some really good um, patient education material. They also have a cookbook, and I remember it being pretty diverse um, and representative. Um, really, you know, it, it just translates in very similar to, you know, what I said. We look at the plant-based foods and the whole grains, the fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds, things that are also in the Asian, um, the Asian diet. And then, of course, the protein sources. You know, fish, I know, is a large um, part of their um, protein base, um, as well as different beans and, and, and things like that. So um, you may be really successful looking at the American Institute for Cancer Research as a great resource um, to get some recipes and, and some menu ideas. Thank you. And we also suggested, of course, um, that... Um, that some of your patients may want to also speak with their healthcare team and also mm -hmm. um, dietitians on their team as well may have some suggestions as well. Um, and AICR is an excellent reference point um, to kind of um, 
contact them as well. Great question, though. Excellent question. And I think, um, could you say a little bit also, Diana, about just the culturally sensitive aspect for all of the diet, for all populations? How do we translate some of these, um, you know, some, some um, you know, people are very familiar with the diets that they grew up with, and sometimes they, um, some of the changes are more complex um, for some than others, if you could say something about that. Yeah, um, you know, the knowledge of the culture is very important because seasonings, herbs, their methods of preparation, um, it all comes together as to what's um, a way to help um, kind of still assist the patient with that relationship they have with food and, and the feelings and emotions that come with that which is very important through their treatment because food is very important for all of us, especially um, people sometimes have a lot of um, emotional connections with with their culture foods. And so um, learning about the cultures, I know in different regions of the United States, you know, we have higher populations of Hispanic population, German population. So I would I would recommend becoming more um, connected with um, – uh, you know how their foods are prepared and and there are some things through um, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics um, that will discuss some cultural um, uh, you know recommendations based on um, some of the the recommendations they have for various diets and and things like that um, but really a lot of it is you just as a practitioner becoming familiar with your population and um, understanding, you know, those common foods that they eat and then how to help support them during that time. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and a question for um, Dr. Yeager. Um, so um, my sister passed away a few years ago of colorectal cancer. She had a history of Crohn's disease and was diagnosed approximately 17 um, years after blockage and a resection without ostomy. I'm currently now the sister is now 71 years of age, and I'm concerned about my genetic risk, and is there any way to test for it? Um, and so far, my colonoscopies have been negative. Um, um, so any thoughts that you might be able to offer in a general way for um, uh, this particular online question would be very helpful. For sure. So um, anyone who has a first-degree relative with colon cancer, um, if the first-degree relative is diagnosed younger, we want them to also have a colonoscopy sooner and to be more aggressive, at least 10 years prior to the diagnosis. Um, it sounds like um, your, uh, your sister may not have been um, uh, so young when she was diagnosed, but she did have a risk factor with the Crohn's disease. And what we're starting to learn is that um, different uh, colon cancers that develop from different uh, risk features may be different. Um, IBD-associated colorectal cancer is, is, uh, appears biologically to be very different than sporadic colorectal cancer. Um, it's possible she has a history of Crohn's disease and developed a sporadic colon tumor, or it's possible that the um, Crohn's disease created the inflammation that um, put her at risk for the development of colon cancer. And we know that patients with IBD are at increased risk and should have more frequent um, colonoscopies. Um, patients with IBD who have a history of at least eight years of IBD are usually recommended to have close surveillance. Um, that being said, if you have no history um, of IBD and just the family history of colon cancer, um, 
and I, I think I caught that you were um, in your 70s, um, you should continue to have regular um, colonoscopy screening. Um, if uh, uh, you have no abnormalities, um, colonoscopies can, done, can be done even uh, 10 years apart, so five to 10 years apart. Um, just touching on um, the issue of IBD-associated colorectal cancer, um, currently we treat them the same as um, sporadic colorectal cancer, but we know that they're different. Um, colon cancer in patients who don't have IBD usually um, develop as an outgrowth, so we see a polyp, and that allows us to intervene, and the polyp is usually precancerous, and so removing a polyp um, is both preventative and, um, in that sense, um, can actually um, not only catch uh, the cancer early, but can catch at a point before it develops the cancer. Patients with IBD often have ulcerative lesions and or strictures and don't have the kind of the, the growth of a polyp that can be easily detected. And the um, pathways involved in the development of these tumors are different. And it's an area where we're starting to learn more as our technologies improve to study these uh, tumors further. Um, and I think... Um, if you you know if you have no uh, history of IBD, um, you can follow regular surveillance guidelines. But if you have a history of IBD, I would speak with your doctor and see if they can maybe plug you into some of those research studies to try to um, make sure that we are uh, doing everything we can, both to learn from your experience and also to do the appropriate surveillance. Excellent. Thank you. And um, Dr. Um, Benson, do you want to add anything or? No, uh, I, I totally agree with that uh, assessment. And uh, the point here is that uh, it, it's it's not likely related to uh, what you were born with in terms of uh, risk. But um, the review was uh, was right on target in terms of what we know about IBD. Well, thank you. Excellent. And I think we have another telephone question as well. Is that right, Ayala? Yes. Our next question is from Stephanie Kay. Your line is now open. Oh, thank you so much, Caroline. As usual, excellent seminar. Um, I have two questions. My first question is, I was HER2 breast cancer 11 years ago, and my dad had colon cancer. I don't know if he was HER2 colon cancer at that time, I think over 19 years ago if he was tested. I did get tested with the Lynch and BART, which was negative. So I want to know the correlation with HER2 breast cancer and HER2 colon cancer and also vitamin D and aspirin I do take preventively, and I want to know more about the studies with that. Thank you. Well, thank you, Stephanie. It's a great question and comment. And Dr. Benson, do you want to address this question in a general way? Yeah, well, um, it, it sounds like uh, testing was done for uh, inherited uh, colon cancer. But um, as we've discussed uh, with a, a first-degree relative with colon cancer, it, it will be important to continue uh, surveillance with uh, colonoscopy. Um, perhaps uh, Dr. Yeager knows better, but uh, I, I'm not aware of a, a clear association between HER2 breast cancer and colon cancer. And as Dr. Yeager mentioned, a HER2 positive colon cancer is uh, is very rare. Thank you. Um, and Dr. Um, Yeager, do you want to add anything? <laughs> Yeah, so I I agree. I mean, if we think about uh, cancers, it's really the cells are growing and they're not stopping, and so that's how the cancer develops. And so um, the HER2 is an important um, protein in the growth 
in the growth of cells. And so the breast tumors are more likely to take advantage of HER2 and um, to make more copies to grow. It's not as common in the colon, but it's basically um, a similar way of the cell basically uh, being able to grow and you know, develop into a tumor. Um, we, we, I agree with Dr. Benson, there, there's no relationship that we know of, but we can take advantage of all the experience um, in breast cancer. So breast cancer is common. HER2 um, amplification and mutations are very common in breast cancer, and there are many drugs that have been developed there, and they're already FDA approved. So as we now start to understand this is a subset of colorectal cancer, we can take advantage of that and have um, drugs that are ready, we know the dose, we know how to give them and use them in our clinical trials. And it's important also because um, in breast cancer, it's a big area of research. There are new drugs that are, seem to be working very well. So patients who have um, HER2 amplified colon cancer, I think are a group that really can benefit from investigational agents and hopefully get on trials that take advantage of the, the new uh, approaches that are being done in breast cancer. And some of those trials are now being open in what's called a basket trial, which is rather than a trial that's only for a certain tumor type, they're testing many tumor types, but they analyze them as their own quote-unquote basket. So there'll be a colorectal basket. So even though HER2 is not common in colon cancer, there aren't enough patients that it may the study may be written to have we're going to have our own small group of colon patients within this basket, and the baskets are driven usually by something like a genetic change, like the HER2 amplification. And so there are drugs that have looked very hot in breast cancer that are now opening uh, basket trials. So not relevant for the caller, but for someone else who may find that their doctor sends a sequencing study of their tumor and they are told, oh, you have a HER2 amplification, that patient um, likely um, has at least clinical, trials op clinical trial options that may be worth looking into. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. These are wonderful questions and really very wonderful and expansive answers. Thank you. And um, a question for Ms. Bearden. Um, so what has been your approach in trying to have patients and families implement a plant-based diet? Yeah. Um, well, you have to start where the patient and family are. And remember, the patient is your focus. So um, understanding the dynamics on how um, food's prepared, who's shopping, um, and then what the patient's willing to do. Um, everyone's level of readiness is a little different, and this is where I find motivational interviewing to be really helpful, um, allowing the patient to set their goals. Um, you do have to get buy-in, but the patient also has to take responsibility as well of, of the choices they're going to make. And, and I've seen that be really successful, and, and family most of the time want to help support that. Um, you just have to work through some of the limiting factors that may exist, financial, um, location, access, those sorts of things. But um, for the most part, you know, it's, it's just connecting with the patient on, let's see what you're doing right now and making small steps towards that goal. Um, you know, diet isn't the only um, intervention out there. Um, and there's a lot of emphasis put on diet. And so I, I always want patients to recognize the whole body approach, you know, physically active, stress reduction. So if they're not quite ready to make a change with their diet, there may be another um, avenue where change can be made and still um, still have that reward of that I'm, I'm doing something for myself and reducing my risk. 
Um, but again, it's all about the patient, where they are, what they're willing to do, um, and then trying to help them fit that into where their life is and their and what where they are. That's excellent to answer that. Thank you. And there is a group out there called Cook for Your Life. It's actually um, a nonprofit. Um, um, we will send the uh, when we send the evaluations to everyone, we'll send resources and it's a, it's a, and many of the resources that Ms. Bearden has mentioned, but we'll include that one as well. And they actually um, do some very they do workshops throughout the country in many other in both hospital settings and other nonprofits and get support community or Gilders Club or um, and just uh, many org- different organizations, they do things around survivorship a month as well. And in June, um, they'll do presentations. And um, but they will actually have recipes on the website, simple things that people can do um, that look really interesting, but really, really um, not too time-consuming for people. And so those might be a nice resource to, to look at as well. But I think Ms. Bearden makes an excellent point. We do have to start where the person is. And um, and recognize that people have you know have so many other things going on and um, it's it's a, a work in progress. I guess I'm going to ask Dr. Benson and, and Dr. Yeager if you also wish to add in on this because I know that is an issue that probably comes up a lot with with your patients as well when you're when you're treating them what what they should do. Uh, uh, yes, um, we we have lots of uh, discussions about diet and various supplements, and we readily refer to our nutrition services. Um, uh, Once an individual has a a cancer, um, it becomes less clear in terms of uh, will the overall outcome be improved with dietary modification. Uh, there's enormous interest in terms of cancer prevention uh, and diet. And I had mentioned the microbiome, the intestinal bacteria, and uh, what is certainly strongly suggested over the years as a Western diet has become more refined with less focus perhaps on fresh fruits and vegetables and, you know, high-fat intake, uh, we've seen changes in the microbiome and the possible link to the development of colorectal cancer. Um, Nonetheless, if an individual has certainly had successful surgery, uh, we think there are other very good reasons for people to uh, practice the type of diet that uh, Diana Bearden was addressing. It's uh, a much healthier way to eat, and uh, if people are expected after their surgery to have a, a long lifespan, it may be very important for other reasons such as obesity, diabetes, the risk of heart disease, to uh, have a, a much more appropriate diet. And so we, we, and this is also part of what we call our survivorship programs, that people uh, need to think about these issues, about what they're eating uh, and, and other health risks over time. Um, whether this will will help um, 
reduce the likelihood of recurrence is under investigation. Uh, and we do have some data, for example, with uh, for people who have had a colorectal cancer uh, with successful treatment, uh, that intervention such as uh, 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 vitamin D, uh, exercise, aspirin, and so forth uh, may have, uh, you know, some overall impact on how people do. But it, it's certainly an area we need to continue to study. Thank you. And, and Dr. Yeager, do you wish to add um, as well? Uh, I agree with what was said. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Um, and we have a question from one of our online participants. Um, and um, this question is Dr. Benson. I'm a 45-year-old man with no history of colorectal cancer or polyps. Should I begin testing for colon cancer? Or should I wait a few years? So um, we are advising, um, for example, African-American individuals to be screened now earlier than age 50. Uh, 50 uh, has been... Uh, kind of the hallmark age for people without identifiable other risk factors. But we stress that it is important for people to know their family history, to make sure there is no individual who's had colorectal cancer. And certainly if there is any symptom such as bleeding to have prompt uh, attention. But uh, outside of that, if if uh, uh, this is a low-risk individual, then the current wisdom is still screening starts at age 50. Okay, excellent. Thank you. And, now, um, by the way, that may change. You know, I mentioned that uh, we are seeing this uh, uh, growing incidence of colorectal cancer in younger individuals. Um, and uh, this this uh, is something that's not yet affected screening programs, but there there's more and more discussion about this, and all, all the more emphasis that if someone develops symptoms, that they need to see their doctors and discuss whether they uh, should have a colonoscopy. Well, thank you. Um, and there is an, another question, and for Dr. Yeager. Um, um, is there a significant difference between optical and virtual colonoscopies? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm the sure It's a question for really okay. for gastroenterologists. It's about the technique okay. of colonoscopy. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah, yeah um, I think they're referring to uh, CT calligraphy. And uh, what I would say, if a person has had a uh, colon cancer. We certainly rely on colonoscopy screening. The 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 one disadvantage, well, some disadvantage with CT calligraphy is, first of all, it's radiation. It's a CT scan, and if there is an abnormality, the individual will need um, colonoscopy. So uh, it is something, though, to discuss. Uh, with uh, a gastroenterologist in terms of the, the technique of screening. 
Excellent. Um, thank you. And um, so another question, um, and for this one, um, for for Doctor um, Benson, if I did not respond to Avastin, would that be indicative of my response to other targeted treatments? Uh, no, it would it would not be. Um, uh, we do not have predictive factors yet to identify those individuals who are most likely to benefit from the drug Avastin, also known as Bevacizumab. There are also <clears throat> other drugs in this class uh, for treatment of colorectal cancer. And uh, for those agents also, we do not have predictive factors. But uh, no, uh, that would not uh, predict if someone will benefit from other interventions, including other biological therapies. And another question for Dr. Benson. I'm a metastatic colorectal patient, and I'm concerned about my children's risk. What screening or testings are available to them? Is this something you would recommend? And just a general, again, that's just a general question from one of our participants. But Well, and Dr. Yeager made some very good points here uh, that um, uh, for younger individuals who are diagnosed with colorectal cancer, we subtract 10 years from that age. So if a person developed their colorectal cancer at age 50, we would want family members screened uh, by age 40. Um, for a person uh, who is older, uh, uh, so say if someone is 60 years old, well, uh, for family members, perhaps uh, age 50 or a little before age 50 falls under current recommendations. But we also emphasize to make sure there's no other potential that it's an inherited colon cancer. So that has to be discussed. That's where MSI testing of the uh, colon tumor comes in, into play also, but it's important to review uh, uh, family history in detail. If there's any question, it's important to seek the uh, advice of a genetic counselor. But uh, that rule of thumb in terms of what I mentioned in terms of age is what's currently employed. Thank you. And Dr. Yeager, do you want to comment as well? I agree with what was said. Well, I have to say, I want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal. I have to say, this has been an amazing call. And I want to thank all of you who've been listening and all of you who've asked such really great questions. These are really amazing questions, I have to say. Um, and um, so, um, uh, so I want to thank everyone, both the participants and our speakers, for being terrific. Um, and um, many of you have been listening as well and have questions that you have yet to have that you haven't yet had answered. So I want to just address your, your concerns about questions that you still have. So for any medical questions that you may have still that you about your own situation, of course, and for those of you who already asked questions as well, of course your healthcare team is a very good place to go back to, even those who asked questions today, to take that information back to treating healthcare team. I think for many of you on the call, these, um, this information allows you to ask more informed questions and also allows you to um, actually feel a little more confident in asking questions of your healthcare team. 
Um, in addition, um, however, some of you may like to call other places to get information, and so I do recommend the National Cancer Institute, 1-800-422-6237. They also have um, a live chat feature at um, www.cancer.gov, and you'll be getting that information in the evaluation information we'll be sending you. Um, uh, resource information we'll be sending in addition to the evaluation. And so that's a wonderful uh, chat, that live chat feature. is very nice for people both in the U.S. and internationally where you can get your questions answered um, from the National Cancer Institute that does have very uh, reputable, of course, and very excellent information. And we also have partnered with various organizations on today's program that are a good resource to you as well to contact for any questions you may have about uh, colorectal cancer as well. So most importantly, as we are concluding the program today, I don't want any of you to feel you're alone in coping with colorectal cancer or any type of cancer. I want you to know that you're now part of a support community and that we're all out here to help you. And um, there are literally, there are many, many organizations today that will be sending you information to contact for support. And you also can access support from cancer care, of course, both from our oncology social workers in terms of practical and financial assistance as well as getting, uh, joining one of our support groups or getting individual counseling. Um, those are very, um, a lot of people find those very, very helpful. Um, and I do want to mention a program that we're offering, actually for those of you who might be undergoing chemotherapy, um, we are doing a program on preventing chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting on Monday, April 16th from 1.30 to 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time, and that might be of interest to some of you as well. So um, again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. And I want to thank you all for your participation, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.